Chapter 2 of A Girl of High Adventure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ashley Jane. A Girl of High Adventure by L. T. Mead. Chapter 2 A Visit to Ireland. It so happened that after his last interview with little Margot St. Juiced, the Reverend John Mansfield became subject to a strange uneasiness of conscience. Never before had he attempted to do anything underhand. He was a God-fearing and excellent man and was respected and loved by all his parishioners. Mrs. Mansfield was respected and not loved, but it was impossible to see much of the Reverend John without feeling his sympathy and acknowledging that burning love for all human souls which filled his breast. Nevertheless, the most excellent man was going to act in a deceitful way. He was going to do something, and that something was to be concealed from the wife of his bosom. He had long felt the injustice of keeping little Margot apart from her relations, and when the child pleaded and pleaded as she alone knew how, and even provided means that would secure the necessary cash, he could resist her no longer. Nevertheless, the good man was miserable. His sermons seemed to have lost their power. He walked with a decided stoop and a heavy expression on his face and Mrs. Mansfield wondered if her husband, that most excellent John, was suddenly developing old age. Meanwhile, little Margot was in the highest of high spirits. She was more attentive than usual to her aunt. It is quite easy to be good when you are happy, thought little Margot, and she sang with greater spirit than ever when Malachi wore his collar of gold. But when she ventured to allude to the subject to Jacko, he desired her to hush. He spoke with a certain severity, which she had never before noticed on his face. Nevertheless, when he saw a look of distress creep into her brilliant rosy cheeks, he took her on his knee, assured her that all was quite, quite right, that his promise was his promise, only he would rather not speak of it. The Friday so full of events drew on apace. The house was to receive a thorough spring cleaning. Mrs Mansfield would be absent exactly a fortnight. During that time Margot was to be a very good child and look after her dear kind uncle, without whose aid she would be nothing but a beggar maid, and Margot promised to do her very best for Uncle Jack, her black eyes twinkling as she spoke. Mrs Mansfield left home early in the morning, and the moment she had gone, Margot danced into her uncle's study. "'Jacko! Jacko!' she cried. "'She's gone! She's gone! Good riddance, say I. Now we are going to begin our fun.' "'You must not talk of your aunt like that,' said Uncle John. "'Are your things packed, Akushla McCree?' "'To be sure,' said Margot.' Dear, kind Hannah helped me. She brought an old leather trunk down to my room, and it is chock-full, chock-full, Jacko. 
I'm taking presents to my three aunts, Nora, Bridget and Eileen, and to my uncles, Fergus and Bruce and Malachi. I'd like well, Jacko, that you gave me money to buy a new pipe for the Desmond and something for Madame as well. I don't know what great Irish ladies like. Do you think a big box of candy would suit her when she can't sleep a nights? I would not buy any more presents if I were you, my pet, said Uncle Jack. Now, see here, I have managed everything. It is very wicked for me, but I am doing it. It is nice to be wicked sometimes, said Margot, with untold fun flashing in her beautiful eyes. No, no, little one, it is wrong to be wicked, and I am deceiving the best of women. I feel it terribly on my conscience. Who is the best of women, Jacko, darling? inquired little Margot. There now, then, I'll tell you if you'll listen to me. It's that aunt of yours, Priscilla Mansfield. Oh, exclaimed Margot. Jacko, your conscience is too tender. It wants some kisses, three kisses on each cheek, three kisses on your forehead, and three on your lips. Now you are better, are you not? Yes, I'm better, replied Uncle Jack. But remember, Margot, Astor, that you have got to believe me to the very letter. Course, replied Margot. I couldn't do anything else. Well then, you listen. You stay at Desmond's town in the county of Kerry for one week and no longer, and during that time you're on no account to speak against your aunt to the Desmonds. This is Friday. You will get to Desmond's town tomorrow. Tomorrow week I'll be waiting on the pier to get you off the steamer. Yes, uncle, I'll do everything. Well, child, I have ordered a cab to fetch us to the railway station at eleven o'clock. What's more, I have written to the Desmond to tell him to look out for you. I haven't sold many of your things, my child, but I've got the price of your return ticket all the way to Desmond's town and five shillings over in case you want some trifles on the journey. Only remember that you must not waste your precious money. Waste not, want not. That's an excellent proverb, Margot. Oh, Jacko, you are getting so like Aunt Priscilla. Don't, don't say any more. I won't, my Colleen. But see, have you got a pocket in your little skirt? Yes, to be sure, and I sewed up the hole yesterday when Auntie Priscilla wasn't looking. Let me feel that it is all nice and tight, said the rector. He put in his big hand, pronounced the pocket safe enough, and then inserted a tiny purse which he had bought for Margot and into which he put five shillings. Here's your purse, Margot, child, and here's your money. And when I buy your ticket, you must be sure to keep the return half safe in your purse, or you'll never come back to your own poor Jacko again. Oh, won't I? said Margot. I have feet and I can use them. Trot, 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 trot. Look, Jacko. You can't trot on the sea, child. I'll keep everything safe as safe repeated Margot. I'll do every single thing that you want me to do, and you may look out for me tomorrow week on the pier. I shall know all about Nora and Bridget and Eileen and Fergus and Bruce and Malachi by then. Oh, shan't I feel rich, 
and aren't you just the darlingest and best of uncles? Run upstairs now, child, and put on your hat. The cab will be round in a moment. Margot disappeared. Bless her little heart, murmured the clergyman. I'll just miss her terrible. But it stands to reason that she should get to know her own grandparents and her own uncles and aunts. I suppose I'm doing wrong, but I can't help myself. May God forgive a weak old man. I haven't the righteous courage of my Priscilla. Little Margot was a delightful companion in the cab. She was quite as fascinating in the train, which bore them at last to that part of the coast where a steamer sped daily from Fishguard to Roslair. The old-fashioned trunk was hoisted on the shoulders of a sturdy porter. From him it disappeared, by means of a crane, into some unknown and apparently awful depths. The Reverend John looked round him anxiously. Was there anyone on board who would take care of the little girl and put her into the right train for Kerry? At last he came across a man who undoubtedly hailed from the Emerald Isle. He had bushy whiskers and small twinkling grey eyes, a wide-cut mouth and no nose to speak of. Uncle John looked at him, considered him and finally made up his mind to speak to him. He had hoped to come across a respectable lady of his little darling's own rank in life, but did not see one. Meanwhile the stranger's eyes twinkled more than ever, and at last he came up to Uncle John, and of his own accord held out a huge paw. How bain't I mistook or bain't I not? But be ye never Jackie Mansfield, son of Farmer Mansfield, bless his soul. Why, he was took years and years ago. Stroked he was, and the stroke was so mighty it took the breath out of him, and he didn't live the night out. He's all right, though. He died a good Christian man. Are ye coming over to Ireland? Thinking to see him, John Mansfield? For ye won't. He's not there. It's a poor, distressful country we as in these times, John Mansfield. You are best out of it. I couldn't help noticing your seeing as we stole so many wild birds' eggs together. Let it be, said the Reverend John. I'm glad to see you, Phineas Maloney. I'm not going to Ireland at all, but I want someone very badly to look after this little maid here. She's my niece in a kind of fashion, and I've had the bringing of her up since her parents died. She wants to go to Desmond Town. You must remember her mother, Phineas. Remember her? said the Irishman. Remember the light of the morning? She was all that and more. But they are in a poor way now at Desmond's town, although they manage to keep together. The gentlemen are all for the hunting, and so for that matter are the young ladies too. Young, I call them, and will while I live. Why ever should ages be added to their burdens? And so this little Missy is own grandchild to the Desmond. She is that, replied the Reverend John, and I am sending her over to see her own people for one week and no more. I take it as a high favour, Phineas, if you would put her into the right train for Kerry, and see after her a little bit when she lands, for she is only a wee Colleen, half French, half Irish. You might help me that much for the sake of old times, Phineas Maloney. Have no fear, man, was Phineas's reply. 
I keep my father's old farm and have a wife and three fine children. They are fretting like anything at me leaving of em, but I had to go get pratties that'll yield a good harvest. What did you say the little miss's name was? Marguerite St. Just. Ah, well, I can't quite get my tongue around that, but I'll call her Magsy. Her'll understand Magsy. It's a good-sounding, sensible title, with no foreign blood about it. Accordingly, John placed his pretty little treasure in very capable hands. Phineas Maloney was a very rough-looking man, but he was the soul of honesty and good nature, and had the highest respect in the world for the Desmonds of Desmondstown. He went and had a chat with the captain, who, as a great favour, allowed him to sit on deck with little Margot. But Margot's eyes were brimful of tears. She was by no means taken by the look of Phineas, and her frantic desire to see her grandparents and aunts and uncles well-nigh vanished when she parted with her beloved Jacko. "'Now then, Missy, we'll have a fine time,' said Phineas. "'The water smooth as a pond, and you going to the most elegant place in the whole of the county of Kerry. "'I can't make out how him himself is your uncle, but there. "'I don't bother me head with what I don't understand. "'He's a good fellow, is John Mansfield.' "'He's the best man in all the world,' said Margot, crushing back her tears with an effort. He's a very, very holy man. But my aunt, she's a wicked woman. I mustn't tell the Desmonds about her, Phineas, but she is a very wicked woman, and but for me, that holy saint wouldn't live long. It's me he really loves. He pretends to love her, but that is just because of his holiness. Are you a holy man, Phineas Maloney? Oh, not me, said Phineas. I has enough to do without being holy as well. My poor knees wouldn't stand it. What do you mean by that, Phineas? Aren't you a bit silly? said Margot. She had begun to get over a little of her grief and to enjoy a talk with her peculiar-looking companion. What do you mean? Speak, man, she repeated. I mains this, Missy Asthor. Holy men are most fond on their bent knees, and with their heads thrown back crying out to God Almighty to have mercy on miserable sinners. Uncle Jacko never does anything quite so foolish, replied Margot. You don't understand him, and we won't talk of him any more. I like that, replied Phineas. When him and me, we took eggs out of every wild bird's nest in the county. Well then, it was you that tempted him, said Margot. It was a bitter, cruel thing to do, and you ought to be shamed of yourself, Phineas. Lorca mercy, listen to the bit thing, cried Phineas with a hearty laugh. Him and me was equal in those days, though now he's above me, no doubt on that. He's a holy man, and you wouldn't have the right to tie his shoes, replied Margot. Phineas gazed with some complacency and amusement at the quaint little figure. Presently he turned the conversation to long and exciting talks about Desmond Town, and the young ladies and the young gentlemen and old madam and the Desmond himself. "'You'll have to be mighty particular when you gets there, little miss. 
The Desmond won't stand any freedoms like. He's as proud as proud can be, though he's got nothing else to be proud of, but that he's the Desmond. So you must mind your P's and Q's. Don't you play any pranks on him, Missy, or it'll turn out bad for you. I won't, Phineas. I won't, indeed. I'm going to be quite a good girl on account of that holy man, my uncle. But please tell me what Malachi is like. Oh, said Phineas, clapping his hands and giving vent to a roaring laugh. There's a boy for you, if you like. There ain't a boy in any part of Ireland, from east to west, from north to south, who can beat Malachi. Why, he could sit a horse that would throw anyone else off its back in a twinkling. The horse may buck jump and may do any mortal things he likes to do. But once Malachi is across him, tis no use and he knows it. For there Malachi will stay. And tell me about the others, please, said Margot. Oh, the ladies, you mean. They're young, mortal young. They are babes of innocence. They don't know the world and they don't want to. Malachi breaks in horses for them and they ride and ride and ride and that's about all they can do. Fergus, the one who was to take the title after his father, is more severe-like, but he's a handsome lad for all that and so is Bruce for that matter. And do they all live at Desmond's town? inquired Margot. To be sure, and where else would they live? But they can't be so young if my mother was their sister, said Margot. Phineas bent towards the little girl. Whist, Missy, whist, Mavornin, he said. We never talk of birthdays in the old country. Age? We don't know what age is. If we ever knew it, we forgets it. We are all young, young as newborn chicks. Now then, Missy, you'd best go and lie down, for it may be getting a bit rough by the by, and we're due at Rosslare early in the morning. Margot sat very still for a few minutes. Phineas, she said then, I have a little money, a very little money by me. Can I have a bite and a sup to eat and drink? To be sure you can, for certain you can. What did you fancy now? A drop of whisky, I'd say, or a bottle of Guinness stout? Oh no, please, may I have a cup of tea and a little bread and butter? I'll get it for you, honey bird, and for the Lord's sake don't mention the word age in old Ireland. There ain't such a thing. Mind me now and be careful. I will, said Margot. I'll be very careful. Presently the farmer returned with some very uninteresting tea and bread and butter, which he offered to the little girl. She was hungry and faint also, for all this unexpected excitement had made her terribly tired. But when she offered to pay, Phineas shook his shaggy head. Not me, he said, not a bit of me. I guess you'll want your money for them Colleen's and boys at Desmondstown. This'll pay for some of the eggs that your uncle, John Mansfield, robbed from the birdies afore he turned a holy saint. So Margot ate her uninteresting meal, found the stewardess extremely kind, got into the berth reserved for her, and slept soundly until she was awakened at six o'clock on the following morning by Phineas himself. Here we be, Missy, here we be. 
If we are quick, we can get lovely coffee at the restaurant in the station, and then off we goes to Kerry. I'll take you as far as the gates of Desmond Town, and don't you fear nothing. Be as free as you like with Miss Nora and Miss Bridget and Miss Eileen, and be playful as kitten with Master Bruce and Master Malachi. But hold yourself in a bit with Madame Desmond and the Desmond and Fergus, the future heir. There, I can say no more. We'll be travelling third, forsooth, in order to make the money go, and I'll be surrounded by old friends. Only don't you forget there's no age in old Ireland. Keep that fact stuck in your breast, and all'll go well. Ah, oh, never mind favouring the stewardess with a tip. Sure, Mrs. Mulchie, you wouldn't be robbing the poor orphan. To be sure I wouldn't, Phineas, replied Mrs. Mulchie. Margot was now intensely excited, although she did feel a certain sense of disappointment at observing that the grass was much the same colour as the grass in England. That the trees also appeared much about the same, and even the flowers, the daisies and buttercups, were what she was accustomed to. But Phineas Maloney supplied her with an excellent breakfast of good coffee, bread and butter, new-laid eggs and honey. "'You'll be wanting all you can get,' he said, "'and tell you what I knows. "'Stuff it in, stuff it in, Missy, "'and then we'll take our places on the train. "'Ah, to be sure, won't them giddy young things "'be glad to lay eyes on you?' "'Do you think they will, Phineas?' answered Margot, "'who regarded the uncouth Irishman now as a friend. "'Do you really and truly mean it?' "'Does I think it?' "'Don't I know it? "'It's hugging you they'll be, "'and don't you repulse them whatever you does, "'and when the girls is kittenish, "'you be kittenish too. "'Ah, well, I can't give any more advice for the present, "'for I see several old friends making for this compartment, "'drat em, and you must hold up your head "'and look mighty proud. "'The Desmonds of Desmond's town. "'There ain't there like in the country.' Poor little Margot endured that long and weary journey as best she could. It was the spring of the year, and the feeling of spring seemed to have got into the breast of every individual who crowded into that uncomfortable carriage. The farmers smoked and talked incessantly about the lambing season, and Margot, presently unable to keep her eyes open, dropped to sleep with her head on the shoulder of Phineas. She felt as though she had known Phineas all her life by now. At Mallow they changed, and Phineas provided a second excellent meal, also out of the bird's eggs which Uncle John had stolen before he became a saint. He further told the child that if she was in any sort of a bit of a trouble, anyone would tell her where Phineas Maloney's farm was. And he'd help her, and so would herself help her and so would the childer help her from the bottom of their hearts. They got into the train, which took them into the famous and lovely county of Kerry, and by and by, about five in the evening, they drew up at a little wayside station. Here a very rough-looking cart was waiting for Phineas, and a small boy who was addressed as Gossoon was standing by the horse's head. Phineas was now most deferential in his manner to Margot. He got Nat, 
the gossoon, to assist him to hoist her old leather trunk into the cart, and then he whispered a word or two into the ears of the said gossoon, which induced the boy in question to give Margot many and amazed glances. "'You couldn't reach to the height of her for ever and ever and ever and a day,' remarked Phineas to Nat, the gossoon. "'Ain't she own granddaughter to the Desmond and child to beautiful Miss Kathleen, bless her white soul? "'And wasn't her father a nobleman of France? "'You keep your manners tight on your head when you look at her, Nat. "'We'll have to drive right round to Desmond Town. "'The young ladies might be expecting her by now, belike, "'and them young boys must be hankering for a sight of her. "'Now then, gee up, Dobbin, gee up.' Off they started in the springless cart, up hill and down ale. The evening light flooded the land and Margot was too excited and too fascinated by the beauty of the scene round her to remember either her deadly fatigue or any little stray crumbs of nervousness which might be lingering in her breast. At last they pulled up at a tumble-down gate. The last time that gate was painted must have been many long years ago. There was an avenue winding along inside and covered with weeds. Nat lifted the leather trunk out of the cart with reverence. Phineas took off his shabby hat, pulled his forelock and said, Welcome ten thousand times, Cade Mille Forte, to Desmond Town, Missy Astor, Missy Marvanine. Then he bent his head and, lowering his voice, said, we must be about our business, Missy, but we'll put the bit trunk under this laurel bush and some of them young boys'll fetch it for you and you'll walk down the avenue bold and free with no sort of shyness in you and when you comes to the front door, ring the bell. Most like the bell'll be broke. If so it be, and like enough it will be, turn the handle and walk in. There ain't no one'll interfere with you. "'but bear in mind we are all young in these parts.' "'With these words he left the somewhat desolate little girl.' "'End of chapter 2.'